This morning we're going to be looking at the book of First Chronicles. And some of you may be wondering why we're going to be going there, and you will have a look now shortly. But just a short background and history of the book of Chronicles. By any standard, the book of Chronicles is an important part of the Old Testament. It's large. It is a very large body of work. It is comparable in size to the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's first written as one book, but it was divided into two parts by the Alexandrian Jews who translated the Old Testament into Greek, which became known as the Septuagint. Chronicles is a monumental history of God's own people from creation until the Edict of Cyrus in 538 BC. The book of Chronicles also marks an era because although it's found after the books of Samuel and Kings in our Bible, it is actually found at the, as the very last book of the Jewish canon. The book of Chronicles is fascinating because in it, the message of the Old Testament is clearly and fully stated. Yet, it is a book that is often underappreciated by Christians. This is because it is thought to be a repetition of the histories of Samuel and Kings, and the author is often compared to those two books and thought to be of an inferior writing quality. But, as we'll see, this book holds timeless truth. The other one, which many of you may be thinking, I've tried reading First Chronicles, but the first nine chapters absolutely sunk me. It is filled with generations. It starts at Adam and it just continues these generations through nine chapters. But if you can get through those nine chapters, you will find a book that is rich in theology and the Old Testament. The book is probably written between 450 to 430 B.C., and in the Jewish tradition, the chronicler, who's not mentioned by name in the book, is thought to be Ezra, or a combination of Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's no absolute certainty on that, and there is some indications that it may have been um, one of the priests of the era. So without any ado, please turn in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29. I'm going to be reading from chapter 1, I mean from verse 1, <laughs> chapter 1 would be a bit of a long day, from verse 1 until verse 20, and that's just to give us the surrounding context of this verse. We will be concentrating afterwards on verses 5 to 16. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced. And the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for Yahweh God. Now with all my power, I have prepared for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony, and stones of various colors and all, thing, all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in, in my pleasure in the house of my God, the treasure I, I have of gold and of silver, I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already prepared for the, house, for the holy house, namely 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver, to overlay the walls of the building, of gold for the things of gold and of silver for the things of silver that is, for all the work done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then would offer willingly to ordain themselves this day to Yahweh? Then the commanders of the father's household and the commanders of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the commanders of the king's work offered willingly. And for the service and for the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of Yahweh in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people were glad because they had offered so willingly, for they made free will offerings to Yahweh with a whole heart. And King David also was exceedingly glad. 
So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. But who am I, and who are, the, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you, and foreign residents, like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Yahweh our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name. It is from your hand, and all is yours. And I know, O God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I, in the uprightness of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with gladness I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intentions of the hearts of your people and prepare their hearts to you and give to my son Solomon a whole heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made preparation. Then David said to the assembly, Now bless Yahweh your God, and all the assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and bowed down low and prostrated themselves to Yahweh and to the king. This is the reading of God's holy, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is inspired. You breathed it out of your own mouth. It is infallible. It is the inerrant, authoritative, final rule of faith and practice for all believers. It is profitable and edifying. It is sufficient to lead us in the living of the Christian life. So guide us in our stewardship and our giving from your word and open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of 1 Chronicles chapter 28, the Bible tells us that David had a God-given desire to build the temple. But God informed him that that was not going to be David's privilege. It was going to pass to his son, Solomon. Now, mark David's reaction here. David doesn't react despondently and say, well, I'm not going to be in charge of this, and skulks off, leaving this for something to be done by Solomon. No. He sees that he's going to have this privilege of building this temple. And so he has a great concern for God and his glory rather than for his, himself. And this makes him take leadership in a most striking fashion. And as we read in chapter 29, we see that he leads by example, encouraging the people to give willingly to the construction of the temple. And as you would have heard my telling of this, you would have seen that there were, we were talking about what he gave in talents. Now, this is not the talents that Bertie was speaking about earlier, which was monetary. This was weight. And if you want to work it out, each talent was roughly 50 kilograms, so you can work out the amounts of gold that were there. It was, it was an incredible fortune. In verse 1, you will notice that he makes the point that the task is great. It is a great work. Why is it a great work? It's not because it's going to be a great building. But he explains that the nature of the greatness is tied to the fact that this palatial structure is not for man, but for Yahweh God. In other words, he is saying in part, we are not about to build the temple, and the people will look and think, wow, look at what they have built. But rather, David is saying, we want to build this in such a way that people will look at the temple and say, wow, look at this awesome God of Israel. Isn't he magnificent and awe-inspiring? The task is great because the structure is for God. Therefore, we look at verse 2, and it says, With all my power I have prepared for the house of my God. Some translations use the word ability or resources instead of power, but the idea is exactly the same. 
David has gone to considerable length to prepare and to provide for the building of the temple. He does not go, go through this and indicate what he has given to be given praise. He is encouraging the people to give. His contribution is extensive and can be estimated in the billions of dollars. Now clearly this is an appropriate and useful chapter to which we are turning today. And given the responsibilities and opportunities that are before us, namely our faith pledge that is currently underway for the building of a permanent home for living stone. And who would have thought that a year ago we would be faced with the prospect and opportunity to do something involving buildings? But the timeless truth of 1 Chronicles 29 is not about building buildings. It is about the heart and how we view ourselves in light of what God has done for us. And if we don't get that, we're not going to get today's passage and we'll never understand it fully. So before we continue our study of 1 Chronicles 29 this morning, we first need to understand and distinguish the parts of 1 Chronicles 29 that are unique and unrepeatable and those principles of of 1 Chronicles 29 that are timeless and applicable to today. Because if we don't get this right, we're going to be tempted to employ Scripture in a way that works against a sensible understanding of it. And I know that many of you here have been studying the Scriptures, and so I pray that you have a sensible understanding of the Scripture. And unfortunately, building projects, as we know, seem to be the worst occasions where the preacher's exegesis from the pulpit has nothing to do with the passage and they are inserting in what they want to tell, the pop, to tell the congregation. I never want you to come out of one of my sermons saying, can you believe what he got out of that? I want you to say, while looking at your Bible, I can see where that came from. Charles Simeon said, my endeavor is to bring out of scripture what is there and not to thrust in what might be there. And this is what I want to do this morning with you. As Christians, when we read the, the Old Testament, we read it in light of the New Testament. And so, for example, when we look at the book of Leviticus, it can only fully be understood as Christians when, when reading through the book of Hebrews. The same of Isaiah. We can only really unravel Isaiah in light of the Gospels. And that is same of, the same of many of the books of the Old Testament when we read through our Bible. The people of the Old Testament were looking to the horizon, trying to look over to see what was being recorded and what was being said and what the prophets were saying. What was there over the horizon? If you were in a good Sunday school and had a good Sunday school teacher, then at a very early age they would have told you that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and that the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So, as we look at our text this morning, you may be thinking, what's all this about a temple? Is the pastor trying to say that we are building a temple and because of that we now need to give this amazing and tremendous amount of resources? So when we come, for example, to 1 Chronicles 29 and to this focus on the temple, you not only come with the background and understanding of the Ark of the Covenant, the place of meeting or the tabernacle as we call it, and the desire for them to build a structure that would house these things. But you also come to it in light of the whole, how the whole story will end. And unless you get that, we will immediately be going wrong in our text this morning. So sometimes it's, it's very useful to read our Bibles from the back to the front. And we're going to employ that today just briefly. So we're going to look from Revelation backwards or forwards towards Genesis. And we'll quickly discover that the temple is no longer a building that we are looking forward to inhabiting. But the temple finds fulfillment in Christ and his people. So let's briefly have a look at some of those scriptures. And for the sake of time, I will just read them to you. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. 
and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So, when we get to the very end of the story, it's not about a building. It's about a place. It's not about a place. It's about a people. Now, that should be no surprise to us if we read and know our Bibles. Ephesians 2 verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The him in verse 18 is Jesus Christ, our high priest and mediator. So we no longer need a temple or the old system of sacrifice or priests to have access to the Father. You and I as believers have that access already. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So there are no holy places anymore. There are only holy people. And this place of meeting only has significance for us because the people of God have chosen this location as an opportunity to give God praise, to study the Bible, to equip the saints. One final passage, if we want to just quickly slip this in there to prove this, and it's Jesus himself in John 4, verse 23. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman, and he says, when they were discussing the places of worship, he says, but an hour is coming now, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. What Jesus is saying here is that there will be a time, and indeed the time has come in me, he says, when no longer will there be any need to travel to a physical temple in a specific city in order to worship. And why not? Because God's people everywhere will now become the new temple in which he dwells. In other words, we're not doing the first chronicle things of they built a big and magnificent structure and so we need to do the same as well. No. They were building a temple because that was where God chose to meet with his people. He no longer does that. That is why God is no more in Jerusalem today than he is in Johannesburg. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that? Jerusalem is a special place. Pastor Jonathan will tell you about it. Because that's where the events, where some of the events of the Bible are recorded. But it is no more holy than where I stand right now. We have to think biblically about these things. Otherwise, we start to make the wrong connections from point to point. The connection from the temple in 1 Chronicles 29 is not to a building here at Ebury Avenue. The connection to the temple in 1 Chronicles 29 is to a building eternal, fixed in the heavens, comprising of all who have been included in Christ. So, many of you will now be asking, so why do we need a building? The temple was to draw the nations to Jerusalem. And for them, in seeing this awe-inspiring structure, to wonder and inquire who this powerful and amazing God of Israel is. We no longer need a temple to draw the nations because as Christians, we are to draw people to God through our going out and preaching of the gospel and using our bodies, the living tabernacle, as an example of Christ to all that we meet and in everything that we do. So why then would we need a building? Part of the mission of the church is to gather in those who respond in faith to the gospel and to teach and to equip them so that they can be sent out to proclaim the gospel and to gather in the lost. Yes, we certainly could do that in an open field. But as most of you have experienced here at Pine Forest, weather is a harsh and unpredictable thing. And you might not be able to meet that day. But that is not the only reason we wish to build a building. You would need a palatial home to be able to host more than 100 church members. Never mind the noise and the parking complaints, the violations of code, and probably it being illegal in the eyes of the government. A dedicated church building 
is a consistent meeting place for Christians and those who are interested in the faith who reside in an area. The church building becomes the center of the community, almost like a lighthouse, drawing in those who are looking for it. It facilitates meetings, weddings, funerals, and celebrations, all with gospel focus, something that we can't do here as regularly. A church building can be used as a school, a neutral place to meet and counsel people, a place to dispense meals to the homeless or the impoverished. And these are just a few examples. I'm sure some of you can think of many more. Regardless of the, de of the denomination, most churches represent a link to God to those outside the faith, a beacon of light to the community, and can be seen as a place that they can seek comfort when they are in crisis. So although we won't be building a temple of opulent splendor, what we are asking is that we would like to build a building that is fit for purpose, is built to honor God, and will meet the needs of multiple scenarios. But most importantly, one that allows the gospel light to shine in our community. Now that we have addressed an important aspect of how we are to understand our text this morning, let us return to our study of 1 Chronicles 29. So in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 5 to 16, we see two reasons to give cheerfully and willingly, so that we can celebrate the infinite depths of God's amazing grace, even as we pour out our resources to him. The reasons we will look at this morning are firstly, God's abundant provision, verses 10 to 13, God's abundant provision. And secondly, our amazing privilege, verses 14 to 16, our amazing privilege. My title this morning is Biblical Stewardship, It All Belongs to God. So let us look together at this first reason, God's abundant provision. Please look with me at the First Chronicles chapter 29 again. And I'm going to start reading in verse 5, and you'll see so in a moment why I'm going to do that. But our focus will be on verses 10 to 13. Of gold for the things of gold, and of silver for the things of silver, that is, for all the work done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then will offer willingly to ordain himself this day to Yahweh? Then the commanders of the father's household, and the commanders of the tribes of Israel, and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the commanders of the king's work, offered willingly. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver, and 18,000 talents of brass, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of Yahweh, in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people were glad, because they had offered so willingly, for they made their freewill offering to Yahweh with a whole heart. And King David was abundantly glad. So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking and praising your glorious name. So look at how verse 5 ends. It ends with a question. And that question should stand out for every believer. Who then will offer willingly to ordain himself this day to Yahweh? The ESV and the NASB use the word consecrate instead of ordain. Now, that is very interesting language. Consecration is the language used of the ordination of the Old Testament priests. You'll find it in Exodus 28, verse 41. When the Old Testament priest was ordained, he was consecrated into the service of Yahweh. And this included everything that he had. His life, his gifts, his skills, his competence, all were to be devoted to Yahweh. So... What would offering willingly look like? 
it would look like this. Consecrating myself to Yahweh today. There is a time frame. Not sometime in the future. He says we are building this building now. And I'm not asking you what you're going to be doing with your retirement fund. And I'm not asking you what you're going to be doing with some great windfall that may come your way. But I'm asking you today, consecrate yourself today to Yahweh today. Notice as well as that he is not appealing to the kings of other nations. He is appealing to the people of Israel. The citizens themselves were to provide sacrificially for the building of the temple. There is no appeal to the king of Tyre or to Pharaoh or to any of the surrounding nations. It is only after Solomon has gathered and prepared for the temple out of the abundance of what the people of Israel gave that he appeals to the king of Tyre for trees from Lebanon. David and the people of Israel had given the real wealth that was to be used for the building of the temple. Notice this commitment is to Yahweh. He is not asking them to make a commitment to a building or a project or to a philosophy of ministry or to a person. He is asking them to make a commitment to Yahweh, our God, and to do it today. This is a very straightforward question and one that no generation of God's people can ever legitimately sidestep. This is a foundational question. This is a question that matters all day, every day, in every aspect of our lives. No matter what we are doing, no matter where we are going, how do I respond to the question of being confronted with temptation? Whatever that temptation may be, I do so in light of David's question in verse 5. Am I prepared to consecrate myself right now, today, to Yahweh? Or am I unprepared to do that and instead will follow through with the desires of my heart? It has to do with the question of how we organize our whole lives, how we use our abilities, how we use our time, the disimbursement of our funds, the instruction of our children. Everything is comprehensively covered by this question found in verse 5. David's perspective helps us to think properly about God, ourselves, our possessions, and the future. Everything belongs to Yahweh, and he will graciously provide for us. And if we are to see God's abundant provision in our lives, we must first have a right view of God, and this is exactly what David is doing here in verses 10, 11, and 12. So firstly notice in verse 10, Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, he is the eternal God. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says that Yahweh never becomes weary or tired, and his understanding is unsearchable. He is not like anyone else at all. Everyone else is a created being. He alone is the uncreated one. Everyone else is finite. He is infinite. Everyone else is limited in their knowledge and understanding. He is omniscient. Everyone else is limited by time and space. He is not. He is unlimited. And so we could go on. But look now at verse 11. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth everything. Let us pause there a minute and contemplate this verse. Let it sink in. Everything in heaven and earth is Yahweh's, and yet we call him Father. He who owns everything, you are our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. People must have looked at David and thought, this is a king who has it made. Chariots, gold, silver, palaces, horses, victory over his enemies, conquered territory. What more could this man want? But he calls the assembled congregation together and says, Father, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Everything in heaven and earth belongs to you. I own none of it. 
Notice the focus of David's praise. It's on the glory and the kingdom and the power of God. Some of you may thinking this phrase is very familiar, and you would be correct. This you will find in the very first phrase of Psalm 145. Go and study Psalm 145 later today or in the coming week. You will quickly see that the themes from Psalm 145 are the same themes from this passage. The kingdom, the power, the glory of God, his ownership over all. They're all found there. But also, have you noticed that the, that the ending of the Lord's Prayer is drawn from the theology of this, of this psalm and from this passage? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Look at me at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen every, everyone. Verses 11 and 12 contain a marvelous declaration of God's sovereignty and sufficiency. Even while leading Israel to bring an enormous offering to God, David was not impressed with the gift so much as with the infinite glory of God. God, who possesses all glory and power in himself, in himself and gives to his and gives it to his gives to his creation any good that it has verse 11 and 12 remind us that we belong the whole of us to Yahweh everything belongs to him god is ruler of everything he is the supreme authority there is no victory that an army wins there is no beauty that a woman possesses there is no wealth that we accrue that does not belong to God. We have nothing which you have not given us. Now, that statement will vex those of us who have been taught and shown to the diligent hard work of our parents and grandparents that we make money the old-fashioned way by the sweat of the, my brow and my own hand. And definitely the Bible speaks in an encouraging way about hard work, as Bertie quoted Proverbs this morning. So there's no doubt that we are to work hard. But what David is saying is, let me tell you something. Every last cent you have is a gift from God. All of it is God's. And in his grace, he may have used your hard labor to accrue it. But it's a gift. It's his gift. Because he could just have easily have withheld it no matter how hard you had labored. And so David acknowledges that everything belongs to God and that we ourselves and all our resources ought to be consecrated to him and his use. Now, I want you to think about that, brothers and sisters. Stewardship is, is about all of life. There is no aspect of, of life that stewardship does not touch. Your body is a stewardship from Yahweh. Your possessions are a stewardship from Yahweh. How does that change the way we look at our possessions? How does it change the way you look at your home, your car, your clothes? They are all gifts from Yahweh. He could very easily have withheld them from you. But in his graciousness, he pours them out upon you. How do we think about those blessings? Are those blessings the substance of our life? Or is Yahweh your substance of life? Paul, when addressing the Athenians in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25, uses language that is very similar to what we see in verse 11 and 12. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We owe our very life, our very breaths to God, our gracious, omnipotent and faithful Father. Now how can you not be awed by the mercy that he shows even to those who do not believe in him? So how can we not, like David, join him in verse 13 and give praise to our all-loving and all-sufficient Father? 
So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. In verse 10 to thir- verses 10 to 13, David is teaching us that we need to think correctly and biblically about God. In thinking correctly about him, we will see God's abundant provision in our lives. Not just in the material things that he has blessed us with, but our very lives. And as we reflect on God's abundant provision in our lives, we can celebrate the infinite depths of God's amazing grace, even as we pour out our resources to him. But our very fleshly nature is to think wrongly about God. And as a result of thinking wrongly about God, we think wrongly about ourselves. Which leads me to our second point this morning, our amazing privilege from verses 14 to 16. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 14 to 16, we see it as our amazing a privilege to give cheerfully and willingly so that we can celebrate the infinite depths of God's amazing grace even as we pour out our resources to him. Please look at verses 14 to 16 in your Bible. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and foreign residents like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. O Yahweh, our God, this is abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name. It is from your hand and all is yours. David concludes adoration and praise with reflecting on what man's standing is before God. And that is how we should view our lives in light of the blessing and life that God has given us. David is reminding us that until we have reflected on who God is, we cannot have a right view of who man is. Psalm 8 reminds us of the correct order. O Yahweh our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemies and the vengefulness cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him? If the whole world is diminutive in the sight of the divine creator, how much less is the significance of mankind? Yet we know this divine creator has his eye upon the sparrow. We see that in Matthew 6. We are of infinite worth to him. David's question here in Psalm 8 verse 4 expresses amazement in God's care for mankind. David is reminding us that we do not start with who is man and then push through to who is God. If you do that, you would be starting upside down. This is why the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. First God, then ourselves. This is exactly what David does in verses 10 to 13. He looks to God first, and then only in verse 14 does he look to man. Look at verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. But who am I and who are my people? This verse echoes Psalm 8, verse 4, reminding us to look at ourselves in light of the divine creator. Now look down at verse 15. For we are sojourners before you and foreign residents, like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. I am constantly reminded of this when I travel with Carolyn and Michael. They have European passports and breeze through passport control. I have, as you would say, a green mamba passport. So I stand in the queue with those who don't belong, and sometimes that queue is very long. I have to have a special visa, and then I have to be asked a million questions before I come in. I'm not a citizen of Europe. I'm just passing through. If you are a Christian here today, you are a sojourner, someone who is passing through. This is a radically different view of the world that man and the secular world would have us see. 
What it says is that those who are brought into relationship with the living God are now in a transition between life as we know it to a new heaven and a new earth in which will dwell righteousness and peace. No more illness, tears, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And meanwhile, we are just passing through this world. And Hebrews 11 shows us this truth. By faith, Adam, when he, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs to the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham knew that the promised inheritance was not earthly Canaan, but an eternal city, heaven. Brothers and sisters, this will make all the difference in your home, all the difference in your business, in your career. It will totally radicalize your life if you believe this. First, a consideration of God and his transcendent greatness, and then a consideration for myself and my finitude and my weakness and my subservience. It's all about God. And if you know your Bible, you know that your life is fleeting. James 4 verse 14 reminds us of this. Yet you do not know that your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That is what David is saying here in verse 15. Your life is a shadow. You are transient. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are not heading to a black hole of oblivion like so many would like to believe. We are heading to the eternal city whose maker and builder is God. Anything that I do in terms of construction or anything else along the way must be framed in that context. Therefore, we need to think biblically about what we have so that we need to have, and to do, in order to do that, we need to have a biblical view of God. We also need a biblical view of man. And we also need a biblical view of stuff. We need to make sense of what it means to amass wealth. Listen to what 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul is not saying that being wealthy or having abundance is wrong. 1 Chronicles 29 tells us that the only way that a person ever gets wealth or honor is from the hand of God, whether they ascribe this to him or not. He gives to someone the ability to get wealth. So, he says, make sure that the people view what they have in light of who God is and who they are in light of their pilgrimage. Everything comes from God. Every last cent is a gift from God, and we saw this earlier. It is all God's. And David acknowledges that everything belongs to God. And that we ourselves and all our resources ought to be consecrated to him. Look at verse 16. O Yahweh our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for, your holy name. It is from your hand and it is all yours. Now that is a radical concept. It all belongs to God. So some of you may be thinking, so what about tithing? Tithing is a fantastic deal. God gets 10%, I keep 90%. But what verse 16 is saying is that everything comes from God and everything belongs to God. 100% of my salary, 100% of my savings, 100% of my investments, 100% of my retirement annuity, 100% of whatever I have comes from God and belongs to God. Now, from that point, let's have a dis little discussion about what we do with it. Tithing is a good place to start, but we must also start with the view of 100% of all our own is Yahweh's. That's where we start. And we can't give to God something that doesn't already belong to him. And yet, here's the glorious point. And listen carefully, please. 
Our God is so gracious as to give you everything that you have and then say, I will take special joy when you give back to me that which I have given to you and which is already mine anyway. I will take delight in it. I will take delight in the heart of your giving. I will give you the privilege of giving to the one who gave you everything. Even though you have nothing to give me, I will give you the privilege of giving back to me. And David is overwhelmed by that. He knows what a privilege it is to give to Yahweh. And he acknowledges here that everything belongs to God. And we need to think properly about what we own and how we use it to glorify God. We need to think properly about how we give. And the answer to that is in one word, willingly. It comes again and again in this chapter. Verse 2 to 5, David gave willingly. Verse 6, the leaders gave willingly. Verse 9, the people gave willingly. Verse 17, David gave willingly. And you can add to that joyfully and wholeheartedly. You will find those words too in our text this morning. In other words, they didn't give under coercion or compulsion. They didn't give because they were manipulated. So let's be real for a moment here and discuss these faith pledge cards. So many building fund collections are an appeal to emotions. They get you all hyped up, they hand out the pledge cards, and then all of us start to write some funny stuff on it, let's be honest. 2023, I'm going to give God a million rand. Your wife leans over, but you don't have a million rand. Good point. Maybe I'll give 50,000. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. Let me be honest with you. Why don't you put down 100 rand? Even if it's a once-off offering. Don't let anyone harp you up. Every 100 rand counts. It is precious. Tell your children that. Include them in the process. Let them understand. Every contribution is vital because the work is great. It's God's work. What is that work? To bring unbelieving people to faith in his son. Speaking of unbelieving people, if you are here today and you're not one of those you can call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, in our own power, we are unable to make ourselves right with God. No amount of money can ever buy your salvation. How can any of us be saved? We cannot save ourselves. That is certain. But the good news of the gospel is that God comes down in our sin and sets us free, providing precisely what we need. We need to recognize that our need is for a savior and to turn to God for that provision. The cure for sin is provided in Christ's sinless life, lived in obedience to the Father and his sacrificial death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Through the death of Christ on the behalf of all who believe, God no longer counts them as guilty. Forgiveness is necessary, both because God is just and because we are guilty of sin. God the judge became the one who was judged for the guilt of all men. The guilt was punished justly, but the guilty received forgiveness instead of punishment. This forgiveness is provided for all, even the worst of sinners. Do not delay Humble yourself today and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He is rich to save all those who come to him. Should you have any questions about the gospel or salvation, please do not hesitate. Please come and speak to me or one of the elders after the service. So in conclusion, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 5 to 16, we see two reasons to give cheerfully and willingly. These reasons remind us that we can celebrate... The 
the infinite depths of God's amazing grace even as we pour out our resources to him. These reasons are God's abundant provision and our amazing privilege. These verses ultimately remind us that we need to think properly about the future. Remember, there was no immediate gratification represented in the temple for David. He would not see the structure built. He would never worship in that structure. But what was his concern? Honoring the name of God. All our plans and visions for this building are some servience to the far greater question. And I will caveat that question praying that the Lord Jesus will return before then. But if not, will the name of Jesus Christ in 150 years' time be celebrated, praised, worshipped, revered and adored in this community as a result of the commitment, the loyalty, the faithfulness, the vigor and the enthusiasm of a people who live now, sacrificing what we have now for something that we will never see and for a people who we will never meet this side of eternity. That's what it takes. That's the vision. And that's why so many walk away from this kind of challenge. We need the immediate gratification. We need our name on the church building. We need to be around to enjoy it. Remember the objective. It's to see unbelieving children, women and men become followers of Christ. Gathered into the local church, equipped and sent out to share the gospel and to create new disciples. And in closing, I'm reminded of an epitaph inscribed on the grave of the Earl of Devonshire in Tiverton. It says, what we gave, we have. What we spent, we had. What we kept, we lost. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would enable us to take to heart the teaching of your word, to desire to do that not grudgingly or under compulsion, but willingly and freely with a whole heart. And Lord, I pray that you would grant to the members of this congregation a special joy in what they give to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.